Now let's turn in our Bibles to the gospel according to John chapter 12. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find the passage on page 1079, 1079. Uh, This is uh, in the story of the Christian church, the beginning of Easter week, uh, and traditionally that begins with reflection on the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover week. So, I want us to read from chapter 12 and verse… from chapter 12 and verse 12. Uh, If you glance at the verses before, it's clear that there has been great excitement uh, in Jerusalem, partly because it's Passover, uh, partly because there are rumors that the members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews, are plotting against Jesus, uh, even rumors that they want to put Him to death. And at the end of chapter 11, uh, we're told that people were wondering whether Jesus uh, would come to the Passover feast at all. So, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him. You understand they are now coming out of Jerusalem. All this gossip has been going on in Jerusalem. Now, they're coming out of Jerusalem. Presumably, they have heard He has been in Bethany, and He will be at the Passover. So, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, that is, after His death and resurrection, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. The crowd that had been with Him when He called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised Him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet Him was that they heard He had done this sign. So, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after Him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So, these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit." Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, 
and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is the beginning of Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed what, we heard, what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. Those of you who are discerning followers of sports know that this week is Masters Week in Augusta, in Georgia, in the United States of America at Augusta National Golf Club, perhaps the most beautiful golf course on the face of the earth. And those of you who lack the discernment or even the interest to know about these things, may be interested to know that the man who founded that golf course, who was probably the most famous amateur golfer who has ever lived, a man called Bobby Jones, uh, visited St. Andrews sometime in the 1930s, booked around on the old course, which was much easier to do then and a lot less expensive, although he could well afford it, and by the time he had played a few holes, no less than 6,000 people had turned up to watch him. Before Twitter, before Facebook, before social media, Bobby Jones is in town. And presumably, everybody in St. Andrews recognized the name Bobby Jones and turned up to watch him play golf with his famous hickory-shafted clubs. So when you go back just 80, 90 years, it's not so difficult to understand that without any of our social media, when Jesus turns up in Jerusalem, His fame is such, His notoriety is such, that massive crowds attend Him. 
Uh, clearly, as John tells us here, there was the crowd of people who were, in any case, going up to the Passover, coming from all over the world. And then there was the crowd of people who had heard about what he had done in the little village of Bethany, where, as John records in chapter 11, he had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And then there were the people in the city of Jerusalem, and since what went on in the Sanhedrin did not stay in the Sanhedrin, people who had heard that uh, there was a plot afoot to get rid of Jesus, and therefore there was tremendous excitement around the time of this Passover, because they knew Jesus had regularly visited Jerusalem and taught in Jerusalem at Passover. So, with all this going on, would Jesus actually come? And now they hear that He's on the way, and so they come out from Jerusalem. So, there's the crowd from Bethany, there's the thousands, tens of thousands coming up for Passover, and there are these people already in Jerusalem who go out to meet the Lord Jesus. And there takes place an event so important, so important that it is recorded by each of the four Gospels. That is a very unusual thing in the New Testament. There are relatively few events in Jesus' life that all four Gospels record, but they all record this event. And the thing that makes John's Gospel unique is that John not only records the event, but he goes to great lengths to teach us the inner significance of the event. Or to put it more accurately, he goes to great lengths to record our Lord's own teaching about the inner significance of the event. In the first three Gospels, the event happens and Jesus ends up in Jerusalem, and there are little clues about what is taking place. But what John remembers is the care that Jesus took in the aftermath of his entry into Jerusalem to explain the significance of what had taken place. But the first thing you notice about this event is actually what's common to John's gospel and to Matthew's gospel, and is fairly clear in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, that this event is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And you don't need to be a rocket scientist to see that. Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey sat in it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And what's significant in John's account of this narrative is that it wasn't this that made the people hail him as king. This wasn't, this wasn't Jesus saying to them, I am the king, so sing hosannas to me. This was actually Jesus' response to the fact that they were singing hosannas to him. You'll see that in verse 13. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. 
And the, the symbolism here goes way back in Jewish history to the days of the Maccabees and the way in which the, the, the triumph of the Maccabees, the heroism of the Maccabees was celebrated by the waving of palm branches. And so this is, this is clearly a, this is a kind of reenactment of a great event of the past because these people hope that Jesus is the promised king, and particularly that he's the promised king who is going to deliver them from bondage, in their case, going to deliver them from Rome. This was their great hope and expectation. Those of you who are Scottish nationalists have nothing on these people. Those of you who feel that you are still in bondage to another country, uh, you have nothing on these people. Uh, this was a military-occupied country, and they were longing for deliverance. Just as they'd longed for deliverance from their exile in Babylon and longed for deliverance from their bondage in Egypt, they longed for deliverance so that they could be free so that they could live according to Torah without fear. And so, as they have seen the mighty works of Jesus, even to the point of raising Lazarus from the dead, their aspiration is, this is the long-promised Messiah. This is the long-promised Davidic king whose kingdom would stretch from shore to shore. The time has come independence has arrived, and Jesus is riding now into Jerusalem. But you see, He's riding into Jerusalem in order to give them a completely different signal. You're not riding on a military charger. He's riding in, in a manner that He had learned from the prophecy of Zechariah, that when the king came, to deliver his people. He would come riding on a donkey's colt. And when John quotes from the Old Testament Scriptures, uh, he expects his readers, uh, many of whom would have been Jews, to recognize the passage from which he's quoting and mentally remember what the whole passage said. Matthew actually gives us the whole context. John assumes that we know the whole context because the significance of this is that the king is fulfilling the prophecy to ride into Jerusalem as one who is meek and lowly because he is an altogether different kind of king from the one they either expect or indeed the one they hope for. It was a kind of indication to them, as in many ways it's an indication to this, that the Jesus of the Gospels, the real Jesus, is not the Jesus that you expected. He is very different from the Jesus you expected. And so, he's first of all giving them a, a symbol in his reaction to the triumphalism of their cries, that he is not the king they expect, that he is not the king they want, but he is the king they need. 
And his action actually, and perhaps this is why Matthew gives us the whole quotation, is very reminiscent of one of the greatest things that Jesus ever said. Those of you who are burdened and heavy laden, and they were sure burdened and heavy laden, if you want to find deliverance, if you want to find relief, if you want to find rest, then you will find it in me because, remember his words, I am meek and lowly in heart. It was an indication to them that they would find in him not the answer to their political needs, but the answer to their deepest needs, that in their restlessness… Remember, Augustine, our hearts are restless… And what a word that is in contemporary society. We are surrounded by seas of restlessness. And the only rest, Jesus is saying, that you will ever find is the kind of rest you find in the one who rides into Jerusalem, meek and lowly in heart. But then John goes on to do something the other gospel writers don't really do. Because this event, uh, Jesus explains, is, is not only a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but it's followed by an event that is a signal to him of his destiny. And notice how immediately in verse 20, we're told that among those who were going up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, that is to say Gentiles, probably God-fearers, like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. And they're, they're going up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, which is a, is a marvelous thing. The only thing is this, they're not allowed very far into the temple. They're not allowed past the court of the Gentiles. The, the one crime for which the Sanhedrin still seemed to have the power to execute people was a Gentile moving beyond the court of the Gentiles. There was a notice fixed there that if any Gentile was found moving beyond this court, then they would be sentenced to death and executed. It was like, it was like the one area where Rome had allowed the separation of church and state. And so here's this marvelous picture, which if we understand it in the context of John's gospel, kind of breathes significance, because Jesus has made it clear in John's gospel that He actually is the true temple. He'd said early on in John's gospel, if anyone is thirsty, then he should come to Me and drink. And I think what Jesus actually says in that context is, because from Me as the fulfillment of the picture of the temple in Ezekiel, from Me there will flow out to them rivers of living water. And John says he was speaking about the Holy Spirit. And here you've got this, this amazing sign to Jesus that whereas he is being rejected by the Sanhedrin, whereas, as is clear in the passage, the people who are hosannaing him don't really understand him, there are these Gentiles coming. And uh, you'll notice that they come to Philip. Philip's a Greek name. 
And so maybe they'd uh, heard him called Philip, and they thought, well, we're Greeks. He's got a Greek name. Maybe he speaks Greek. And they, they go to him, and they say something that actually it's not behind this lectern, but uh, David will be able to tell you behind many lecterns and pulpits in Scotland, you would find these words that the congregation would never see, but the preacher would always say, sir, we would see Jesus. And that's what they ask for. They, they want to see Jesus. And the significance of this uh, is not just that they want to see Jesus, not just that whereas the people who surround Jesus are not coming to Jesus, whereas these people who are barred from the inner sanctuaries of the temple are actually coming to Jesus from whom they may receive rivers of living water. It's that this is a sign to Jesus Himself. This is like a… this is as though God has switched on a light in Jesus' life. And you'll notice what His response is. John doesn't even discuss the question whether they ever got to Jesus or not. He's not really interested in that. What he's interested in is, what did this say to Jesus? And you'll notice in verse 23, Jesus answered them. Now, this isn't, this isn't an answer to any question they were asking. Do you notice that? Jesus answered them. The hour has come. And if you've read through John's gospel, that's like a cold shower in the morning. Because John's gospel is punctuated by this phrase, his hour had not yet come. Remember what he says to his mother in John chapter 2, why, why are you fussing about the wine running out? My hour has not yet come. And it's repeated in John's gospel. His hour has not yet come. His hour has not yet come. And if you're reading slowly through John's gospel, you're meant to be asked the question, well, when is his hour going to come? And how's he going to know his hour has come? And this is fascinating, isn't it? Uh, because Jesus is helping us himself to understand what is going on here. These Gentiles want to see him, and he realizes this means his hour has come. Well, what hour? Well, he tells us, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And by that, in John's gospel, Jesus means the hour has come for the Son of Man to be crucified, to die and then to rise and ascend into His glory. But why should this be a sig Why should these Greeks coming to Jesus be a signal to Jesus? What's the answer to that question? Well, the answer is this. What Jesus has always known is that He has come into the world not just to be the Savior of the Jews, but to be the Savior of the world. Remember the first testimony that is given to Him by His relative, John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the most famous words in John's gospel, maybe in the whole of the New Testament, God so loved not the Jews that He gave His only begotten Son, 
but that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And it was a fulfillment, you see, to Jesus of all those Old Testament prophecies that looked to the day when the world would come to the temple, when the world would climb the mountain of the Lord and seek the blessing of the Lord. And here, if you think about it, uh, you know, there have been some people with mixed religion who have come to Jesus, but in John's gospel, this is the first time that someone who comes from the world has come looking for Jesus, and he knows this must be the sign that my ministry to the whole world is about to begin. So, yes, it's a fulfillment of prophecy, and yes, with that, it's a sign to Jesus of his destiny. But you'll notice in the verses that follow now, in verses 24 to 28, that Jesus now explains that his death is the great necessity. Uh, it's a, a prophecy fulfillment, it's a, it's a destiny signal, but now he wants to explain to them that in order for him to fulfill this ministry as the Savior of the world, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that is going to require his death. And so he goes on to say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and unless you grasp this, you can't make any connection between verse 23 and 24. Truly, truly I say to you, this is his way of underlining something or of, of putting it in block capitals. Everything I say is true, but this is particularly significant. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What's the point he's making? The point he's making is that if a harvest is to be brought in, then the seed needs to fall into the ground and die. It, it, it's a picture f drawn from an agricultural, rural setting of the significance of what is about to happen to him. Now, nobody around him understands this. He's explained this already to the disciples. They cannot take it in. That in order for him to enter into his glory, which is a glory in which he will take away the sins of the world what falls upon him as a necessity is that he should die. It's by dying that the harvest will be gathered. By living, he could have been the triumphant conqueror that would set the people free from their bondage to Rome, but only by dying can he set the people free from their real bondage, which is their bondage in sin and their bondage to death. And it's a, it, it, when, when you set this in the context of John's gospel, it presents you with this amazing picture that the king, in order to set his people free, the lion will need to become the sacrifice, the lamb, Remember how John sees what you might think of as the movie version of this in Revelation chapter 5. 
where he's shown this picture of, of God's purposes apparently being frustrated because his purposes of salvation are all locked up in a book that's sealed, and there's no one in the world who's worthy to break open the seals and to open the book of God's saving purposes. And, and John begins to weep with sorrow. And then someone says to him, stop weeping, John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king has conquered. And you have these marvelous moments in Revelation chapter 5 where John tells us, I looked and I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. It's the, it's the movie version, as it were, of what Jesus is saying here will happen in reality, that the deliverance of His people from their bondage and sin will require Him to lay down His life as the true Passover lamb that would bring them the relief that they need. And it's very interesting in this, this context uh, that it, it seems as though just as He says this, the cost of it hits home to him. You notice that as he goes on. He says in verse 27, now is my soul troubled. And then you can read the words that follow in different ways, but I think probably the right way to read them is this. What shall I say? Well, what shall I say? What would you say? What would the sinless one who had never knowing, known anything but his father's smile, what would the sinless one pray if he knew that the way ahead meant that the father's smile would turn into a frown and he would come under the judgment and wrath of God? Then he would have to pray this, Father, save me from this hour. He couldn't possibly want that. He couldn't possibly want the cross. Don't confuse the idea that Jesus went to the cross with the idea that He loved the idea of going to the cross. Don't, don't for a moment think it was ho-hum to Jesus to cry out, Oh God, I'm forsaken by you. Why? No, He says, what shall I pray? Well, the only thing I can pray is, Father, save me from this hour. That's his, that's his native holy human instinct. Holy humanity could never desire to be cut off from the smile of the heavenly Father. But you see, he realizes he's not in the world to fulfill the wishes of his holy humanity. He's in the world to fulfill His divine destiny. And so He prays. I, of course, would pray that, but this is the reason I came into the world. Oh, so Father, glorify Your name. And this is such a big moment. They hear Jesus. They have, could, they, could they have begun to understand what Jesus was talking about? And so God, as it were, speaks from heaven. And they can't understand what God is saying. 
But Jesus is saying, God is speaking from heaven for your sake so that you realize what I have just prayed belongs to the very essence of your salvation. If I, the Holy One, am not cast out into the world of unholiness, which God judges, then it's not just your political deliverance that's at stake. It's your eternal salvation that's at stake. Because my death is an absolute necessity. And that leads him in the verses that follow to a fourth thing. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. This is a signal of Jesus' destiny. It shows us that his death is an absolute necessity. And then in verses 29 to 33, he explains that the cross is his pathway to victory. And he explains how this will take place. Verse 32, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Well, how did he know that? He knew that because he knew his Bible. He knew this was his destiny in his humanity, which, my friends, was not omniscient. Jesus never, as it were, uh, drew on his deity to make him something other than truly man. Otherwise, he never would have been truly man. So, how does he know these things? Because he's read his Bible, and because he understands that, that he is the one in whom the great pictures of salvation in the Old Testament all coalesce, that, that he, he is the one Isaiah looked forward to. In fact, he, he uses language straight from Isaiah 52, who would be highly exalted who would be lifted up, and who would, through his death and resurrection, sprinkle the nations with the forgiveness of sins. And he knew that that would mean that he would be crushed on the cross, as Genesis 3.15 had promised, that the seed, the great seed of the woman would come who would have his heel crushed by the serpent, the evil one, but in the process of having his heel crushed would crush the head of the serpent. And you notice how he refers to that? He says in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I will draw all people to myself. It is it is a great picture of his understanding that the only way to bring in his kingdom, the only way to create a kingdom of forgiven sinners is by his taking the place of unforgiven sinners and bearing his Father's judgment against their sin and then rising in triumph and sending his apostles to the ends of the earth with the message that the King has come. Lay down your arms. Be reconciled to God. And this is wonderful. This is glorious. But you'll notice at the end of the passage, it's also very sobering because they don't seem to understand a word that he said, not a single word. 
And so he issues his last appeal to them. Jesus makes no invitation to come and trust him in John's gospel beyond this point. This is his final word. And he says, while well, you've got the light, come to the light. Walk in the light. And you can't help feeling because you're a human being yourself that there would have been many of them who would have said, we can always hear him next week or next year. Or we can come to trust him when, when we know he's speaking to us. We can come to trust him when, when we decide it's time for us to trust him. I always say to people who, who say that to me, would you, would you just do it, do it now so I can be sure that when the time comes you'll be able to do it? And I've never met anyone who said, I'll do it now, who's been able to do it. Because uh, if you're not doing it now, you're not actually able to do it now. And he says that, doesn't he? And that's why his appeal is so strong to them. These, in John's gospel, are Jesus' last words to those who have not yet believed in him. And he's saying, if you have the light, if you see the light, don't delay. Come, lay down the arms of your resistance. Yield to the king who has become the lamb who takes away the sin of the world because he's meek and lowly in heart. There's no one else in the world can offer you that. No one else in the world. But he offers you himself. So get beyond your self-sufficiency and your arrogance and your spirit of I can do it and see that you're restless and in need and guilty, powerless to save yourself. But now there's the light. Let's come to the light and trust in Him. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for our Lord Jesus, for the way in which He perfectly understood who He was and what He'd come into the world to do. We thank you for his willingness to bear your judgment against our sin, the thought of which must have appalled him in a, in a terrible way that shook the very frame of his being. And yet he prayed not, Father, save me from this hour, but Father, this is the reason you brought me into the world. This is the hour. And we pray, Lord, as your word comes to us, this is also the hour for us in different ways. Some of us may have slipped away from you. Some of us may never really have known you. Others of us may have found ways of pretending that we belong to you. But we pray, Lord, if you are speaking to us again this morning, that we will not be slow to turn to our Lord Jesus, 
and trust him as our Savior and yield to him as our King. And this we pray together in his name. Amen. As we've been reminded this morning, indeed, salvation 